0: Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1, looking at verses 10 through 12. I'm pleased to serve with Aldo on the examining committee of our presbytery. He's the church history guy, asking those kinds of questions to our candidates. So if you have a burning church historical question for him this evening, he'd be happy to answer it. Colossians 1, we'll begin reading at verse 9, and we'll focus this evening on verses 10 through 12. Let's join our hearts together in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing. Our Father, as we have just sung, we would ask that you would fulfill in each one of us that we would be that tree planted by streams of living, life-giving water, that we would meditate upon your word constantly, that we would have that incessant face-to-face communion with you in your word and in prayer, and that you would apply now the reading and the preaching of your holy and life-giving word to our hearts, that you would afflict the comfortable And comfort the afflicted, and that you would bring glory to our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us. And this we pray in His name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will So far in Colossians chapter 1, we've seen that Paul has given thanks for these Colossian believers in the Lycus River Valley in modern-day Turkey, even though this false teaching has made inroads into that church, that false teaching being some sort of blend of Old Covenant ceremonial laws with contemporary to that time paganism. That's the specific kind of false teaching the Colossian church was dealing with, in his opening to his letter to them, Paul talks about how he has been praying for them in gratitude for how they have begun well. And As we saw last time beginning at verse 9, he is praying that they would continue well. They have begun well in God's grace, and Paul is praying that they would continue well, more and more growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. This prayer beginning in verse 9 is one of Paul asking God for The Colossians to have greater fellowship with God, a fellowship that they already have in Christ, but that they would know and experience in greater measure. This prayer for greater fellowship with God, we saw in verse 10 last time, is something that will manifest in a new walk, a new lifestyle, a new walk that is pleasing to God. That's what we ended with last time. So, here, picking up in the middle of this prayer, in the middle of verse 10, We see that, as Paul says in verse 10, that we would be fully pleasing to God or please God in every way, could be translated. We see in verses 10 through 12 what that means. What does it mean to be pleasing to God? And so Paul elaborates on that theme, what it means to please God, giving four things. Four things that explain what this new walk is, what this new pilgrimage to heaven will look like, the manner in which we please God on our way to glory. Four things, four ways we are pleasing to God in Jesus Christ, four participles, those I-N-G words, running, walking, that kind of word, four participles with four modifiers, all of them are in the present tense. So these four things that we'll look at as specific ways, the manner in which we are pleasing to God, these are continual. These are ongoing, coming in greater and greater measure until we reach glorification at the return of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these four things, these four ways we are pleasing to God by God's grace in union with Jesus Christ. First of all, bearing fruit in good works. Bearing fruit in good works. That's what he mentions there in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work. Good works please God. Good works characterize the believer's new walk, new lifestyle in Jesus Christ going from this earthly pilgrimage to our heavenly destiny. We saw a little bit last time how in in that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 It is bracketed by a walk. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about how we were characterized in our walk before we came to Jesus Christ, before God gave us new life in Jesus Christ. We were characterized by a walk of sin. Everything, because we were outside of Jesus Christ, everything we did was for our own glory, according to our sinful and corrupted minds. And everything we did in that walk was characterized and influenced by sin. But then when God saved us, when God gave us newness of life in Jesus Christ, that we, we receive by faith alone, we have a new walk. That's what, how Paul ends that passage in Ephesians 2.10. We were saved by grace for good works, for walking in good works. And so we are, as, as Protestants, we are very good and should be very good at knowing that we are not saved by works. But we need to be just as good at emphasizing that we are saved for good works. Salvation is for good works, for a new lifestyle of knowing and glorifying and pleasing God in the, in the almost infinite variety of ways to glorify Him in this life. If you would, take your hymnals with me and turn to the section on the confession of faith toward the back, chapter 16, which is on page 857. Page 857, want us to look at a few things from, from the confession here on good works. So to emphasize the, the necessity of good works, not as the basis of salvation, but as the fruit of that salvation, not as the prerequisite for receiving grace, but the fruit of grace. Look there at paragraph 3 of chapter 16 on good works. Their ability, believers' ability to do good works, is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, beside the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of His good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty, unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. And so the Westminster Divines summarizing and synthesizing the teaching of God's word are emphasizing that Pauline theme of how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in us, Philippians two twelve and 13. Again, this participle, bearing fruit in good works, is in the present tense, it is an ongoing and continual thing. Think of the, the bearing fruit metaphor of, of union with Jesus Christ by faith, how we as believers in Jesus Christ do not just follow him, we are in him, in a living and life-giving bond of union. How Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches and with that vital life-to-life connection by faith as we have come into contact with the risen and exalted Jesus Christ who by his life-giving power enables us to bear fruit in good works that is how we bear fruit we are the branches we have no autonomous sources We have no sources within ourselves to bear fruit, to be pleasing to God. It is only as we dwell in Him and have that living communion with Him in prayer and in His Word. That's where organic growth comes from. Now it's worth asking, what is a good work? This chapter from the Confession also answers that question. Look there with me on page 857 of our hymnals. Look at the last paragraph, number 7. Works done by unregenerate men... Although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, or make a man meet or ready to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. Now there's a lot going on in that paragraph. Let me just emphasize from that paragraph three things for answering what a good work is. That paragraph emphasizes that to evaluate whether something is good, whether anything we think, say, or do is good and pleasing to God, we must consider the goal, the motive, and the standard this paragraph emphasizing how unbelievers do nothing that is pleasing to God, they have the wrong goal, motive, and standard. But for the believer, that is all radically changed. Our goal is different. Our goal in in all things is the glory of God. Outside of Christ, our goal was the glory of number one, of ourselves. But now in Jesus Christ, our hearts are radically turned toward Him, and our, our goal is His glory in all things. Secondly, the manner. Our manner is different. We do things not from a heart corrupted by sin, but from a heart, as the, as the paragraph says, a heart purified by faith, a heart that wants to please God, a heart that desires to grow in his grace and do all things before his face. Our manner is radically different. And also, thirdly, our standard is different. Outside of Christ, the standard of sinful men is whatever we think is best. Whatever the culture says, whatever friends say, whatever we think is best. But the standard for the Christian is, thus saith the Lord. Whatever God says in his word, all that he says, but only what he says. And so thinking about what a good work is, this this new way of walking in this new path, a path of not sin, but a path of good works, walking all the way to glory that marks our earthly pilgrimage to glory by good works. It could be lots of things. It could be calling a friend for encouragement. It could be praying with someone. It could be checking on someone in times of, of temptation. It could be So many, it could be countless things. Anything, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 31, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, marked by those three things of the new goal, motive, and standard. But of course, we are aware of our sin. We, are, we have a sight and sins that we fall so short of God's standard. We, we sin in thought, word, and deed constantly. How could I, even a true and sincere believer, how could I ever perform anything good and pleasing to an infinite and holy God? I'm glad you asked that question. This chapter answers that question as well. Look at the paragraph before, paragraph 6. Notwithstanding, as the, as the chapter has gone on here, saying we are unable to merit good, good um, eternal life by our good works, it is all proceeding from God's grace by His Spirit. We are unable in ourselves to please God. And it gets us nice and humbled before we come here to paragraph six. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Isn't that lovely? That we in Jesus Christ, offering up our poor works to a holy God who requires perfection, we are clothed in that perfection in Jesus Christ, and so all that we do that is sincerely for the glory of our Savior, he is pleased to accept the way that a father accepts his child's work. In this connection, I think of picking up my children from school, and they have their art drawings sometimes limited to one crayon line on the on the page. It is not high art, it is not something that could ever hang in the Louvre, but it is since it comes from my children who are mine, and I delight in them as my children, what they give to me is delightful to me. Obviously, all examples break down, but God is pleased in his, in his perfection to manifest his perfection because we add nothing to him. He needs nothing from us. He is pleased to manifest his perfection in being pleased with what we offer to him in sincerity for his glory. It is, it is beset with weakness and imperfection all the way until glory. But our God is pleased in grace to receive all that we do for him as truly good because we do it in Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness and enabled by his newness of life. That's the first thing, the first way in which we please God, bearing fruit in good works. Secondly, the second way, increasing in the knowledge of God. That's also there in verse 10. Increasing in the knowledge of God. This is also what characterizes our new walk. This is knowledge of God that Paul Paul mentioned also in verse 9, that we may be be filled with the knowledge of God's will there in verse 9. And so knowledge of God, knowledge of God's will is very important for him. This is um, the, the construction here is knowledge about God. Knowing about God. Can knowing about God be perverted? Of course. Even the demons believe true things about God and tremble. But don't take the perversion of the thing as the thing itself. Knowing about God in itself is good. It is good to learn and know and grow in who God is. His names and perfections and attributes. The knowledge of God. Of course, not limited to intellectual comprehension, but a, an expression of worship, a, a, a love for God, a full-orbed kind of knowledge, mind, affections, and will, communion with God for his own sake. In, in the famous words of Psalm 73, "Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my inheritance forever." That is knowledge of God. That is what Jesus Christ prayed for in his high priestly prayer, what he came to earth for, John 17:3, "This is eternal life that we know. That we have knowledge of the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And so what Paul is praying about here is that we would increase in, have greater knowledge of, and walk in this eternal life, which is knowing the one true God. Philippians 3 verse 8. As Paul looks back upon a an impressive legacy of his Jewish heritage, that he was born in the right way and he did all the right things to earn favor with God. And if anyone could have earned favor with God, it would have been Saul of Tarsus. And he looks back on that experience after having come into contact with the risen Christ and he says bunk to all of it. I count it all loss in view of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What could make Paul's impressive resume look like nothing, look like trash to him? Knowing and communing with the risen and reigning prophet, priest, and king, head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Similar connection with knowledge in Peter's second epistle. Peter, in his second epistle, brackets it with the knowledge of God. 2 Peter 1 verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. And and Peter ends that with, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. Colossians and 2 Peter are similar in that they are both dealing with, Paul and Peter dealing with in those epistles, false teaching. Peter is dealing with the false teaching of those who deny the return of Christ and And the immoral lifestyle that would come from that, if there's no judgment day, then live it up. Do whatever you want. And here in Colossians, we need to add to Jesus Christ this old covenant ceremonial law plus paganism, mishmash. Let's add to Jesus. Jesus is great. Let's add to him as well. Whatever the variety of false teaching, Peter and Paul, the, the other apostles, they know that what the church needs most is knowing God. And that involves knowing about God. To get down to brass tacks, to know more about who your God is, believer, let me encourage you sometime to look at our Confession of Faith chapter two. Those three rich paragraphs on who God is, listing out his biblical attributes. Go through those paragraphs. Look at the proof texts of those paragraphs and worship. Let me encourage you to pick up a volume such as God is by Mark Jones, a devotional study of the attributes of God and be, and be humbled in the presence of this infinite, eternal, unchanging, absolute, self-sufficient God. So before moving on in this passage, notice these first two participles, these first two things in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. These two things together, they echo verse 6 of chapter 1. Look, look up there with me at verse 6. Speaking of the, the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Same words there in verses 6 and, and 10. The difference being in verse 6, Paul is using the language of the, of the creation mandate where God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply, to bear fruit and increase, to fill the world with the glory of God. Here in verse 6, Paul is using that creation language to talk about how the gospel of the second and last Adam is spreading throughout the world. It's no longer confined to the one nation of Israel. It has gone to the nations. But here in verse 10, it's not the gospel that is spreading. It is believers who are who are spreading and growing verse 6 the the word is going out and increasing verse 10 you believer you are bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of god and in good works and so as god told adam in genesis 128 bear fruit and increase fill the world with the glory of god Take the glory of God located in Eden and spread it to the entire world. Fill the world with worshipers. Adam failed to do this, and so the second and last Adam, Jesus Christ, has come and done this, not in having physical progeny, but in having spiritual brothers and sisters who in union with him as the last Adam enables all who are in him to bear fruit and increase as part of his new creation. We are the ones who are being filled with God's presence. Adam was told to take the presence of God to the earth. He failed. Jesus brought the presence of God to us. And in him, we come into God's very presence and know and enjoy him for, for time and for eternity. So that being the first two things, two ways, two, the two manners in which we please God. Let's move on thirdly to verse 11. Being strengthened for perseverance. Perseverance being strengthened for perseverance. Just look at verse 11 again. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience. What could be said about such, a, such an amazing promise of how we are able to please God? Notice the, the superlative language here in, in verse 9, that we'd be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Then verse 11, being strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience. Do we lack anything in the Christian life? Well, objectively, no. We have all we need in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for this life and the life to come. He enables us by his life-giving power to be pleasing to an infinitely holy God for time and for eternity. Being strengthened for perseverance, this is another way we please God, another way our new walk is characterized. Keep your finger here in, in Colossians one and turn with me over to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians 3, just read this prayer from from Paul in another prison epistle, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner man, your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do we pray this way, dear congregation? Do we pray this way to know and experience more of the otherworldly, Supernatural power of the self sufficient triune God. What's amazing about this prayer in Ephesians 3, just to make one brief comment, is that he's praying that we would have divine strength to comprehend the incomprehensible, which won't happen in this life or in the life to come, but that we would be enabled by God to know and glorify God. Same kind of connection here in Colossians 1. This is a supernatural, otherworldly power at work, in you, the believer. I don't know about you, but I, in my sin struggle, in my suffering, I don't need tips and tricks and hacks and little helps and advice. My sin is so stubborn, my suffering is so great, that I need supernatural power. I need God himself to empower me, to enable me, to make me pleasing to him, to keep one foot in front of the other in the race set before me. Thankfully we have a gospel sufficient for even the worst sinner, even the greatest sufferer. We have the power of God himself. This is the fulfillment of Habakkuk chapter 3 where he prays there God the Lord is my strength or Psalm 73:26 God is the strength of my heart forever. What is this power? This is the power, the same one that spoke all things out of nothing and into nothing. This is the same power that saved the Israelites at the Red Sea who were hopeless to cross the sea or to escape from the coming Egyptians who drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea but led his people all the way through upon dry land. This is the same power that made Ezekiel see that the dry bones in the valley would have life out of death. This is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the same power that raised you from the dead, believer. And it's the same power that is enabling you, being at work in you, to keep going, to persevere in this earthly race. It's for endurance and patience, as he says there in verse 11. Same thing as Hebrews 12. We look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, and we're enabled by him in life-giving contact with him to finish this race. It is difficult. It is bitter. It is long. It's not going to end anytime soon. We are enabled by God's life-giving power to keep going. And that's why this is also not a, 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 we are not able to draw from this that we can be lazy in the Christian life. It is an active commitment to keep running and the only way you can keep running is because you are enabled by an otherworldly power. That's why you can and should keep running. As, as it was said during World War II, we keep calm and carry on. Well, fourthly and finally, as we close, the, the last thing we see about what a life that is pleasing to God looks like, it is giving joyful thanks to the Father. Giving joyful thanks to the Father. Now that's there at the end of Verse 11 into verse 12, with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Now, you might have there that with joy goes with all endurance and patience, so that would go with the being strengthened participle. I think it's better to put with joy, um, along with verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Not a huge deal either way, but it, it completes the, the, the balance of the, the four participles with the four modifiers. And so a life that is pleasing to God, a life that should characterize the, the new walk of the believer is a life of gratitude, It is a life of joyful gratitude there. We give thanks to God joyfully because of what God has done. This is, a, this is gratitude that should mark the believer with joy because of how wondrous, how amazing what God the Father has done for his people. In this connection. I think of when I was a, a young boy, hopefully there's no more evidence of this anywhere, a young boy at Christmas, and a, a, a relative gave to me a bird feeder. Now, if you have a four or five-year-old boy in your life, don't get him a bird feeder, because there was footage of me looking at this bird feeder and simply losing all muscle, um, muscle power and falling over and banging my head into it in, in disgrace and in, in disgust. Not something for for a little boy to not not a way he should react. So you must say thank you to your great aunt or whoever it was. You must say thank you for your bird feeder. Thank you. Not with joy though. Obviously, we can we naturally give joy to the give thanks to the Father joyfully because of the amazing, otherworldly and eternal benefits He has given us in Jesus Christ. They are listed there specifically. In the rest of verse twelve and into verses thirteen and fourteen, which we'll look at next time, but simply sticking to these four things for ways we walk in in pleasing God, we we focus on a life that is pleasing to God is one that gives thanks to God joyfully. What has God the Father done? God the Father is the one who has elected us unconditionally before the foundation of the world. He is not for anything we would do. He is the one, not because of us, but because he loved us. Because of his good pleasure and free grace, he is the one who handed his people over to the Son who would in time redeem us in his life, death, and resurrection. God the Father elected us. God the Father also is the one who who did the work of effectual calling. He's the one who said to us in our hearts, Come to Jesus Christ and enabled us to come, giving giving us that new life-giving power to answer that call. He renewed our minds and our wills and enabled us to take hold of Jesus Christ for our salvation. There's There's such a persistent error in the church that Jesus died for sinners and then had to convince the Father to love us. Romans 8 31, 32 kills that myth and says it was the Father who gave Jesus up to be to be offered as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And if God the Father has given us his own son, what will he withhold from us? He is the one who enables us in this passage to be strengthened with all of his power, perhaps more specifically, the life-giving power of Jesus Christ in his resurrection for persevering grace to see our Savior face-to-face at the end. He enables us to do this. In this connection of of Natural response of gratitude. I think of the story that's listed in a Puritan theology by Joel Beakey and Mark Jones that talks about a response of gratitude for grace. A wealthy Englishman went to California in the 1850s to enrich himself during the gold rush. After much success, he left to go back to England. He stopped at New Orleans on the way home. And as all tourists did at that time, visited the infamous slave trading block. As he approached the place where people were sold for cash, he saw a beautiful young African woman standing on the block. He overheard two men who were trying to outbid each other for the woman, talking about what they would do to her if they could buy her. To their surprise, the Englishman joined in the bidding by offering twice the price. The auctioneer was astonished. No one has ever offered this much for a slave, he said. After purchasing her, the Englishman stepped forward to get her. When he helped her down to his level, she spat in his face. He wiped away the spit and led her to a building in another part of town. There she watched uncomprehendingly as he filled out forms. To her astonishment, he handed her some manumission papers and said, There, now you are a free woman. She spat in his face again. Don't you understand? he asked. As he wiped her spit away again, you are free. She stared at him in disbelief a long while. Then she fell at his feet and wept and wept some more. Finally, she looked up and asked, Sir, is it really true that you paid more than anyone has ever paid to purchase me as a slave only to set me free? Yes, he said calmly. She wept some more. Finally, she spoke, Sir, I have only one request. Can I be your slave forever? And so as we know how sweet grace is, we will naturally respond in gratitude and desire to serve the God who saved us of his own free grace. May God enable us to desire to walk in a manner pleasing to him in these ways for his glory and for our good. Amen.